If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. During this difficult time, we want to make it as easy as possible for our readers to get their copy of BBC History Magazine or BBC History Revealed. So for the next few months, we'll deliver your favourite magazine direct to your door with no delivery charge. From today, you can save up to 70% off the shop price and subscribe from just £9.99. That's just £1.66 per issue. There's never been a better time to get your favourite history magazine delivered direct to your home. To take advantage of this unmissable offer, please visit www.buysubscriptions.com forward slash history extra and choose your magazine. Don't forget, all of our magazines are also available digitally on your mobile or tablet device. Visit buysubscriptions.com forward slash history extra for more information. We look forward to welcoming you. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. As I'm sure you're aware, the news is currently dominated by the global spread of coronavirus. And a lot of the conversation has revolved around the lasting impact of COVID-19 and how it could reshape our societies. To draw a historical parallel, today's podcast looks at the widespread consequences of another disease, the Black Death. Our guest is Jane Whittle, a professor at the University of Exeter who studied the economic and social impact of the Black Death in medieval England. Our content director, David Musgrove, spoke to her to find out more. I'm joined today by Professor Jane Whittle, who uh, Jane Whittle is a historian of late medieval and early modern England at the University of Exeter. Uh, She's written an interesting guest blog on the early modern society and culture blog website at uh, manyheadedmonster.wordpress.com about the government's response to the Black Death. And the Black Death, of course, was a pandemic in the mid 14th century that killed millions across Europe and Asia and is estimated to have caused the deaths of half the population of England, which is a phenomenal and terrifying number. Um, What we're going to talk about today is the societal and economic changes that the Black Death caused. Um, But first, um, Jane, I I suppose we need a bit of context. So would it be possible for you to um, sketch out the nature of society that existed in England? And we are talking about England here, I think, specifically uh, at the time the plague struck. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, it was a rural society, and we'd probably describe it as a peasant society. So most people were smart, uh, farming small plots of land, um, often very small, so barely enough to, to, to survive on. Um, and uh, it was a feudal society. So these peasants were paying rent to manorial lords um, who had political power and sat in parliament, many of them. Um, and... Uh, so the peasants supported the, the class of manorial lords by paying rent to them in various forms. And that society had been reasonably static for uh, uh, for a few generations before we get to the Black Death? So um, 
We know quite a lot about the 100 years before we get to Black Death, so we have a lot of documents that um, tell us about rural society. And from that, um, yeah, it was it was um, stable in the sense it's had the same type of institutional structures, but people lived in villages. Um, they The land was owned by manorial lords um, and everything was organised around this kind of manorial structure. So... Um, tenants not only paid rent but many of them were unfree and actually belonged to manorial lords so they were part of the property. Um, There was change in that period so we know population was growing um, and that was putting pressure on the land um, and increasing um, poverty and we know that there was for instance quite severe famine in the early 14th century, um, 13-15 and people were really um, struggling to to survive and um, it's estimated for mortality, for instance, in that famine might have been about 15%. So it was already a a society that was kind of under pressure um, and perhaps not functioning as well as it might be. Okay. Um, And then we get this this major uh, event that happens in in the mid 14th century. And and just quoting back from the uh, from the blog that I I mentioned in in my introduction, uh, you made an interesting point, which is I'm just going to read out for the benefit of the listeners. Unprecedented episodes of disease, such as the current outbreak of COVID-19, are moments of fluidity when parts of existing societies are laid bare as not fit for purpose. So I'm wondering, were there areas of society and economy that were not fit for purpose in 1347-48 when the uh, the Black Death struck? Um, yeah, it, well, the interesting thing about Black Death is that things didn't collapse straight away. So um, although the, the mortality was extraordinarily high, um, it's perhaps the more surprising thing is things did actually carry on as normal. Um, so... Peasants still worked the land and they still paid rent to the lords and the lords still sat in parliament and passed laws um, and the king still ruled over them and was still carrying on kind of fighting wars and so on. Um, so so things didn't change straight away at all. Um, but what we see is that um, in 1349, which is um, about a year and a half after the plague had first struck England, um, we have this law passed called the Ordinance of Labourers, which complains that uh, people are not willing to work for the same wages that they used to work for. And it enacts various measures to um, basically force people to work um, so that um, manorial lords can carry on um, in the same economic position that they were before. And this was... Was this a, a significant intervention by the government? And I suppose we should probably clarify what we mean by government here. What what was the what was the nature of government in in the mid fourteenth century? Um, so there was the king and his um, immediate advisers or council, um, and then there was parliament, which was made up um, of a gathering of of the lords and then a gathering of the commons. Um, the commons were not as we would think of the House of Commons today. So the Commons were um, gentry, um, so gentlemen, and also um, wealthy townspeople. Um, And we're talking quite a small group of people as well, like, um, you know, about 200 people in the Commons. 
Um, yes, but so it's still, I mean, it's not just the king making these decisions. He, he will consult with Parliament. But this isn't this isn't a representative democracy in any way. They're not looking to they're not looking out for necessarily the interests of the wider population. No, and it, I mean it's interesting in that um, in the early fourteenth century, which was when the the Commons started meeting, the, um, let's call them the House of, House of Commons, although they weren't actually known as that at the time. Um, they started meeting regularly, um, and before the Black Death, they seemed quite happy to see themselves as representing the common people um, and standing up against the king who wanted higher taxes and also was um, uh, confiscating food and materials to fight wars, um, which clearly the the population were very unhappy about. Um, So in that period, we see Parliament actually, to some extent, sticking up for the interests of, of ordinary people. But with the Black Death, we see a quite noticeable change in that they start to see themselves as a group um, of employers who have common economic interests, which are actually um, the opposite of much of the population who are people who are working for wages. Um, So we see a a new sort of type of social divide emerge um, and is reflected in, in what Parliament is doing. So that takes us back into the uh, to the ordinance of labourers that you uh, that you talked about earlier. So that was this this was a mechanism that was designed to address uh, the labour shortage that was uh, that was happening because of the uh, high mortality uh, that uh, that people were seeing on the ground. Yeah, and I think the really interesting thing about the ordinance of labourers is we might expect that um, that the government would have been more concerned about serfdom. So serfdom was is seen as the crucial structure in feudal society that keeps ordinary peasants um, in their place, if you like. Um, Perhaps you could just just explain what serfdom is for us. Yeah, so um, in the period uh, we're talking about, perhaps about uh, half of the tenants were unfree. So that meant that they were given a certain social status um, and... Um, we would call it serfdom today. They didn't use that term then, but it's basically serfdom. And that meant that um, they couldn't own property. Everything they had belonged to their manorial lord. They weren't meant to leave um, the village where they lived. Um, and they had to uh, work the land and pay rent to the lord. So it wasn't a matter of choice. They they had that position in society and it was an inherited position. Um, so if... Uh, if we imagine that the, the king and um, people in parliament were concerned about social order, we might imagine that they would turn to serfdom and say, well, let's strengthen serfdom and make sure um, that these people stay in their place. But that wasn't what they did. Instead, they um, they legislated about wage labour. So they basically they moved away from the existing system and decided that they the, what the system they needed to have instead was one whereby people were paid for the for the work that they were done. Yeah, and I mean clearly they weren't making up the idea of wage labour. Wage labour was very common before the Black Death, um, but it lis- it existed alongside serfdom, and what um, so manorial lords had um, large amounts of land. And some of that they rented out to tenants, but some they kept for themselves and managed directly. 
And on that land, which was known as domain land, um, in some places it was worked by unfree tenants as part of serfdom. So they, the unfree tenants performed labour um, services. But mostly um, by the mid-14th century, it was worked by wage labour because it had been realised that wage labour was much more efficient and flexible and the um, workers were better motivated. Um, so what we see with the ordinance of labourers is that in this moment of crisis, rather than the government seeking to strengthen the institution of serfdom, they they don't think of doing that. They Instead, they think, no, no, the problem is the problem of wage labour and we have to make sure we have a good supply of wage labour and that um, people are willing to work for us. So... Um, and this was this was driven directly by the uh, by the impact of the Black Death, presumably. Yeah. So the um, the Ordinance of Labourers, which was passed in 1349, it starts um, its first few lines are, are saying because so many people have died, um, we can't get the workers we need, um, and uh, workers are, are more. Um, they want to beg in idleness, it says, rather than labour to get their living. So um, they really see that this problem of, of labour shortage is caused by the um, outbreak of disease. They're very clear about that. Um, and their solution to it, rather than, for instance, um, raising wages or treating their workers better, the solution is to um, force people to work and to set wages at the um, pre-plague levels. Sure, and the, so the, the measures that they um, put in place, they they were not um, what would you say? They weren't progressive or uh, really in the interest of the labourers, were they? Uh, no, <laughs> definitely not. And um, so they're um, saying that anybody who's um, between, uh, well, actually, they don't give a bottom age, but they say anyone um, who's younger than sixty um, and who doesn't um, have land or um, a craft with which to occupy themselves. Anyone in that category must work. Um, and, and if they don't offer themselves to work, they'll be forced to work. Um, and um, once we're, they're within a contract of work, um, then they must not leave that, that place to work before the end of the agreed term. And it also um, fixed the level of wages. So, I mean that doesn't sound great for the for the labourers, does it? So uh, was that was that better or worse than serfdom um, for for the people on the uh, on the receiving end of it? Um, I think it's probably better than serfdom. It's not um, inherited. Um, it's people would get paid, um, and they it, it's accepted that people might move between employers between contracts, um, but it. Within the, the wage labour relationship, it's trying to um, say that this isn't going to be a, a, a relationship, a contractual relationship between equals. Um, if you uh, don't have property, then you have a duty to work and to work on the terms that are laid down in, in the legislation. So, so what was the reaction uh, amongst the peasantry to this then? Was there... Uh was there uproar about it or was it just that this is this is what happens and we have to get on with it well i think 
the interesting thing is uh, we have to think about who's employing labour and who's providing it. So um, if you were a relatively wealthy peasant, um, you're probably employing labour. So you might actually support this this, um, legislation. Uh, If you were poorer and you didn't have enough land to support yourself, then you're on the receiving end. So it's something that's that's going to kind of um, split communities. So it's not kind of that the peasantry as a whole would be against it. The poorer parts of the peasantry and those without land um, were on the receiving end of it. Um, the wealthier peasantry actually helped to um, enforce these laws. So how does this tie in with the, the narrative that I think probably quite a few people would uh, would think about from the aftermath of the Black Death that the uh, the position of the labourer must surely have been strengthened by dint of the fact that there were less people around, so uh, the employers, the people who needed the work done, would have to be nicer to the people who needed who mm-hmm. were going to do the work. Yeah, well, I mean, these laws set out how they wanted it to be. It's quite another thing to actually enforce the laws, um, and w- we can see that there is pressure to um, pay higher wages. Um, And um, at the same time, the laws are um, unusually, um, particularly in Eastern England, where there was a a lot of uh, wage labour, they are actually enforced um, quite rigorously. Um, So, and and one of the measures of the the laws was that um, people were fined for for taking uh, high wages and the amount they were fined could then be used by that community to help pay taxes. So the community had a a sort of incentive to fine people for for receiving high wages. Um, But we do do see economic change and it's clear that there is a pressure for, for higher wages um, but at the same time, there is quite a lot of action taken to try and keep wages down as well. And the what about this sense of social mobility? Uh, well, not social mobility, actual mobility of people uh, leaving where they uh, where they lived or were born and going elsewhere to seek work. How does that tie into this story? Yeah, well, there must have been a lot of that going on. So. I mean, so we painted a picture of, of before the plague where, you know, a lot of people were tied to one place by serfdom um, and there was a real shortage of land. Um, after the Black Death, land was easier to acquire and there was a big incentive to, to move. If you moved away from um, the place that you belonged to, you might actually manage to become a free person rather than unfree. Um, and uh, if you weren't a serf, you could move anyway, seeking better economic opportunities. So um, I think part of what the laws are doing, that they're kind of expressing a real shock on the part of the, um, the, the ruling class and the employing class, that um, ordinary people are showing quite a lot of initiative to try and um, improve their lot and um and this is causing a lot of problems for those who want to employ them, who are used to being able to employ large numbers of people on very low wages um, in order to um, farm their land or build their houses or whatever. Um, 
So, yeah, it is in that sense a a period where you can see uh, that change um, change is coming to an extent, but the, the ruling class are really pushing against those changes. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. There was this strong understanding, which is very clear from the legislation, that people had a duty to work and that unemployment was um, not just, I mean, we might think it's not desirable to be unemployed, but they thought it was morally wrong not to work Um, and therefore everybody had the duty to work. It seems like a, a quite a quite a fast response from the government, really. When we talk, when we think about the fact that the, the Black Death only really arrived, what, what did you say, eighteen months before the mm. um, before the ordinance was was um, instituted? That you kind of get the sense, or, or maybe this is just me being uh, being uh, ignorant, but you kind of get the sense that that uh, medieval government would be fairly slow to move in that sort of thing. So. Um, set me straight but how how why how were they able to to act so quickly no i i think that is one of the remarkable things about it that you know the plague was was still kind of virulent at the point when they passed this law um and this is what they're thinking about this is what they're most concerned about um so i think i think that is actually very striking um it takes a, a couple of years before Parliament actually meets. So um, Parliament doesn't meet until 1351. And then as soon as they meet, um, one of the first things they do is um, take these uh, uh, the ordinance of 1348, which is basically a kind of royal proclamation, and they turn it into a statute supported by Parliament. And the interesting thing about Parliament then and um for the rest of the 14th century, really, is that it's pushing um, the king to make this legislation even more severe, to to have increasing controls on on working people, um, rather than it being kind of the king that's pushing it. So it it definitely seems to be coming from quite a large um, group of people who are people who would employ a lot of labour, who really see this as one of the most pressing issues um, of government in this period? Um, so the the the, the governmental response is, is basically broadly economic here, isn't mm. it? It's, it's, or, or at least the way you've described it. Was there was there no element of um, uh, something more akin to looking to help people or resolve the the the, the obvious medical emergency or would they just think there was nothing they could do about it other than uh, resort to prayer which was being dealt with by the by the church anyway yes yeah, so there's nothing in terms of um a kind of medical response no so that's i mean really very different from from the situation we find ourselves in at the moment yeah was is from your research is there anything that's that you know was was the med- medieval economy and society in any way prepared for a, a global pandemic in the 14th century was how how ready were they for this sort of thing if at all uh i think not at all so um i don't think it's something that people would have expected um but in terms of of sort of how how people dealt with it i think um because most people uh 
kind of lived on the land um, and farming was the main way of making a living. Um, you know, I think a lot of the problems we're having nowadays are, are about accessing food, for instance. For them, that that wasn't the issue. Um, I think the issue was really there was no systematic medical care, no real understanding of how disease was spread. Um, and so there was no kind of, yeah, social or medical response in that sense. But the but the government, the king, and and his uh, and his entourage must have been very aware of the fact that this was a significant problem. So, how were they finding that out? Was it because the, their leading tenants were coming to them saying, "We've got this problem with with, with serfdom and and uh, a lack of um, uh, lack of workers," or was that were there reports coming in that, that you know that were telling them about the the catastrophe that was unfolding? Well, the law, um, the the king is himself a lord. So he has his own tenants and and his own workers. So he would have known um, what was going on, um, and um, that the the people in the elite they weren't geographically removed from um, people of the lower orders. They were surrounded by them wherever they were. So I think you know it's, it's, there's no difficulty in finding out what's going on. Um, you can see what's going on around you, um, and. Um, Amongst them, the, the kind of king and council would have had uh, knowledge about what was going on in various different parts of the country. So I think in that sense that they would have been very well aware what was happening. Um, so so how does the Peasants' Revolt fit into this uh, story? That was obviously in 1381, uh, a, a topic that uh, many people have studied at school and which uh, must have uh, must have led on in some uh, way from uh, from what happened in the Black Death. Yes, yeah, certainly. So we can see 1381 as an expression of all these built-up frustrations um, with the ordinary population. And it's interesting because um, if you look at the demands of the rebels... They both, um, on the one hand, they demand an end to serfdom. So serfdom hadn't disappeared. It might have been weakened, but it hasn't hasn't disappeared. Um, and it's clear that people want it to end because they bother to state that in their, in their demands. But um, it was also a rebellion against the labour laws. So there was a lot of um, uh, action against um, the justices who enforced the laws um, and also the, the burning of legal documents um, in an attempt to to kind of erase them um, from from the system. So um, I think we could see 1381 as an expression of popular feeling, and it's interesting that for for ordinary people, both serfdom and the labour laws are are key issues, really. Okay, so um, so what's what's the what's the long term? Uh consequences of, of what happened then with the with, with these acts to uh, move to a, a wage labor economy yeah well I think for me one of the really interesting things about 1349 so this labor legislation was created in, the, in this moment of crisis but it it lives on and and the basic measures that it put in place um, stay as part um, of a kind of active legislation within the country until the early 19th century. That's an awful long time. Um, they are actually reenacted in the 16th century in 1563. Um, and some historians have seen that as a, a kind of 
entirely new piece of legislation. Um, but I think we now have evidence that um, the measures which were enacted in the in the 14th century carried on being um, enforced in the 15th century um, and in the mid-16th century. And then the 1563 Act was just a, um, a reenactment of many of the measures and elaborating other parts of them. Um, and then that act carries on, um, yeah, being enforced in the 17th and the 18th century. So I think that's really remarkable that it has that, that long life, um, despite the fact it, it emerged from a moment of crisis. Uh, you've taken us up to the to the 19th century. So uh, so uh, a big change then. So the, the, the consequences of the of the Black Death, basically, they, they spread out for a good 600 years from uh, from 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 when the event happened. Yeah, well, I, I'm not sure it's the consequences of the Black Death, but it, it, it was a realisation that the economy was no longer based on serfdom. It was based on wage labour. Um, and that wage labour economy carried on existing in roughly the same form until the late 18th, early 19th century, um, when it's really transformed by industrialisation. Um, so, so I think it, it's kind of telling us that um, that the economy had entered a, a new phase. Um, but I think the, another interesting thing about this is that, that historians have, have I guess thought about it. Okay, so um, there was the end of serfdom, and then we had um, free free wage labour, um, where people could negotiate contracts, and um, and we think of it as as a kind of free market economy. But I think that the existence of the labour laws reminds us that people at the time did not understand it in that way. Um, there was this strong understanding, which um, is very clear from the legislation that um, people had a duty to work and that unemployment was um, not just, I mean, we might think it, it's not desirable to be unemployed, but they thought it was morally wrong not to work um, and therefore everybody had the duty to work and they carried on legislating um, wage levels, but whereas nowadays... Um, we legislate for minimum wages. They legislated for maximum wages. So you were not allowed to earn more than a certain amount. So these, these principles that people had a duty to work, um, that wages were, were controlled um, and that um, various aspects of the contract were controlled so that um, people couldn't break contracts. Um, these principles carried on being in place from the mid 14th century through to um, the late 18th century and they remained on the statute books until the early 19th century. So, so clearly that's very significant. I, I wonder um, before we uh, wrap up and start thinking about the implications of, of what might be happening to us today with COVID-19, did, um, did these laws impact uh, more onerously uh, on men than women? What was the, what was the gender um, situation? Here? Because, you know, I've read uh, quite a lot in the past about the fact that the Black Death was in some ways good for women. I don't know if that's, um, uh, I don't know if that's a, a view that, uh, that you have any, um, take any credence to. I think one of the remarkable things about the laws is they very clear that they apply to women as well as men. So um, if you needed an indication that in the past 
uh, it was expected that women would work and earn their own living. These laws are a very clear indication of that. So um, the idea that everybody under the age of 60 had to work, it it specifies um, men and women. Um, So, uh, yeah, but then when you look at the wages that are legislated, they're always set at a lower level for women than they are for men. So it's not like gender equality, but um, women certainly had a duty to work and to work for wages. Okay. Um, so th- that's the Black Death. Um, uh, e- even in the worst case scenarios that were being predicted, the COVID-19 pandemic isn't going to get anywhere near the levels of mortality that uh, that they um, horrendously experienced um, in the 14th century. So uh, I suppose I'm not asking you to compare the two, but do you? What's your view on on how far uh, what's going on now might lead to societal changes, and if so, what, where, how? When? Yeah, well, you know, it's not possible to foretell the future, but it got me thinking about um, how in kind of extraordinary moments, uh, be they um, caused by disease or um, perhaps more commonly by war, um, that governments will enact new measures or put new measures in place and that that kind of suggests that there's a certain fluidity in these moments that that um that things that were taken for granted beforehand um are questioned and um because society faces uh, an unprecedented situation that often they start thinking differently about how problems might be solved so yeah, from from my point of view, I wonder if the situation we're currently in might lead to um, government and, and society at large thinking differently about how we might solve some of the problems we face at the moment. Um, and how do you think that might happen? You've you've talked about the possibility of the universal basic income, I think. Yeah, so, I mean, if you just think about the world of work, Um, It's clear that in the last um, 20, 30 years, the nature of work has been changing, the nature of paid work. So we've had things like the gig economy emerging, zero hour contracts, um, much more fluid job markets. So uh, uh, kind of the the idea of having a lifelong career is, is receding. And it's not very clear that government policy Um, or wider social attitudes have have kind of um, kept up with these changes. And um, at the same time, um, systems of welfare are are strongly connected to um, the way we work. Um, And it's clear that at the moment, very many people who who work hard, work full time, but don't earn enough to support their families. So, um, and on the horizon, we have prospect of um, more automation of work, um, leading to um, more difficulties for for people finding work. So, yeah, the idea of universal basic income is a fundamentally different way of approaching um, all these issues. And um, rather than having a complex means-tested welfare system that compensates for people who can't earn enough or can't find a job, um, universal basic income says, well, we're all part of the same society. We need to support each other 
um, here is a basic amount to allow you to survive. If you earn a lot of money, then you can be taxed and that will take that money back to the government. Um, so, yeah, I I think a system like that um, might be a more effective way of dealing with the problems we, we face um, in the modern world of work. And it's also an approach that, that might have been a useful way of... Um, sorting out the, the issues we have right now of how people are actually going to support themselves if, um, you know, uh, work isn't happening um, because we're all uh, self-isolating ourselves in order to um, counteract the spread of disease. That was Professor Jane Whittle of the University of Exeter. You can read plenty more about the Black Death and medieval history more generally on our website, historyextra.com. Thanks for listening. Today's podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. We'll be back on Friday when Tom Ellis will be discussing the mission to rescue Apollo 13.